The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about the outlook for healthcare stocks and COVID treatments and vaccines. My guest is Josh Nathan Kazis, Barron's healthcare reporter. Welcome, Josh, and glad to have you back on Barron's Live. Good to be here. Glad to talk to you. All right. So, Josh, I know that for as long as you've been doing these calls, you've always opened them with a discussion of, uh, you know, rundown of the pandemic in the U.S. and, and where it stands. But in some ways, it seems like we're getting to a point where maybe we could start with a different topic. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's getting to be a little bit out of fashion to, to to track COVID statistics. I think, you know, the most important development in the pandemic over the past week or so was was this past Sunday when the president, when President Biden, uh, he was on 60 Minutes uh, on, on CBS and, and and they said he, he said the pandemic is over. Um, that's not a direct quote, but that was that was the implication. Yeah, I, I know there's a little bit of backlash to that, but I'm wondering, is it? I mean, I think it depends what we mean by pandemic, right? I mean, I will say I've been in Midtown a lot the past few days and, you know, the era of everyone being masked is long over. You know, you see masks on the subway um, and every so often in stores, but but it's nothing like it was even just a few months ago. You know, if we, if we look at the numbers, things are certainly trending better. Um, according to, you know, the, the Times has a good tracker and they, they say that the, that the U.S. is averaging... Um, about 3,700 um, people in the U.S. in ICUs at any one time. I think that's probably one of the most important metrics that lets you kind of track, um, you know, the most intensive uses of healthcare resources by COVID patients. Mm-hmm. And that's down 11% over the last two weeks. Hospitalizations in general, so that's ICU plus um, people who are not in, in the intensive care unit, uh, is down 13%. Deaths are about stable. I mean, it's about 400 people dying per day, which uh, that's a lot. That's a lot of people, um, you know, and, and, and it seems as though the country is sort of getting comfortable with that. Um, and, and I think we could have a debate about whether that's okay or not from public health and, um, you know, ethical perspectives, but that that's where we are. Yeah. I mean, I, I still find that number a little bit shocking. I know it's not anywhere near what it was at the peak, but it's still, as you said, it's, it's a lot of people. Dying it's 400 people. Uh, it's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, what I want to ask is, uh, you know, winter's coming. Um, are we being complacent? Uh, you know, I mean, there, there are certainly efforts to prepare, right? I mean, we, we can look at the, at the bivalent booster rollout, which we can talk about later, but this is clearly, uh, you know, an attempt by the government uh, and, you know, public health authorities to dampen the wave that they expect this winter. Uh, I will say that hospitalizations do seem to be rising in a few colder states. Uh, they're up 12% over the last two weeks in Rhode Island and 12% in Vermont, 6% in North Dakota. I'm cherry picking a little bit, but you know, you, you can sort of see that that could be a sign of the kind of increases coming that we've seen uh, in previous winters as, you know, people moving inside, the temperatures getting colder, leads to a rise in cases. Um, 
it's hard to say. Uh, but certainly, you know, I think as we said, you and I said last time we were on this call, uh, public health authorities do expect the increase in cases to come this winter. And, um, you know, I think we'll see how good the, how effective the the bivalent booster campaign is, both in terms of adherence and in terms of the vaccines matching the circulating variants um, and, and what kind of impact that ends up having on what kind of healthcare impact we have this this, this winter. And uh, what, uh, I mean, another thing, this is also cherry picking, but in the past week I've had uh, two friends uh, here in New York uh, test, test positive, and I think part of that's back to school. I will, uh, <laughs> we, we, we get, we get alerts from the school, from the DOE about um, cases in, in the school. Yeah. And uh, it's cer certainly happening uh, yeah. for sure. But, you know, that's a pretty narrow set of data, I think. Very much so. Um, so, and and even corporations, though, are, are starting to act like the pandemic is finally over, right? Yeah. And, and this is not, I mean, this is just, I think, more a sign of what's happening to healthcare utilization and, and the economy. I mean, I think one important thing that happened this past week Actually, this was last week. Was um, that Humana, you know, a large insurer? They had been, they had worked in um, uh, fifty cents. They they adjusted their twenty twenty earnings guidance down fifty percent, fifty cents per share, so to account for the impact of the pandemic of COVID. So, um, and that sounds almost like what a bank does when it sets aside reserves for um, you know losses from like bad loans or something. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just a, it's just, it was just a matter of adjusting their expectations to to factor in the pandemic, and they said actually we don't think we need that anymore, and they they removed that fifty cents from their guidance. They in fact only ended up going up up, up twenty five cents. They left fifty cents in to account for the possibility of a a bad flu season, a severe flu season, which would have an impact on them. Um, this is just to say, you know, the experience of Humana, which watches this very closely, um, you know, given that they are, they are looking at lots of data about lots of um, people's health insurance experiences, um, is that they are not going to see a, an impact this year based on, you know, fr from the pandemic. Now, that could have to do with a return to healthcare utilization in 2022 after light utilization in 2020, 2021. I mean, sort of counterintuitively, the impact on insurers was that they had fewer costs at the peak of the pandemic because people were not going in for all sorts of procedures and delaying care. Um, I think Humana, the implication is that they're not seeing that, but it also could be that they're not seeing, um, you know, the huge costs from taking care of very sick patients. So it's, it's frankly, to me, like a little bit obscure to kind of tease out precisely what Humana means by taking this out, but just, um, you know, on a, on, a, on a broad level, they are, they are saying that they're not seeing a pandemic impact, a negative pandemic impact this year. And I think that's an important sign. So you mentioned the bivalent boosters before and the rollout of those, uh, rollout of those. Can you first explain what that is? Yeah, and you know, it's always good to have a reminder because there's so many terms that get thrown around about related to COVID that um, those of us who are not doctors shouldn't have to think about it, <laughs> and yet here they are. <laughs> and and so, so one of them is these bivalent boosters, and these are these new boosters the, the updated boosters from Pfizer and Moderna, and they mix the original vaccine with an updated version of the vaccine that targets BA4 and BA5, which are, for now, the, the dominant variants in the U.S. Um, and these have been available um, really just a few weeks, um, and they're rolling out across the country right now. And I guess the big question is, are people going to actually go out and get it? Yeah, that's the, that's the most important question, as you say. 
As far as I can tell, there's no data on this. We, I, I have not been able to see. It doesn't appear that the CDC is tracking like how many people get these new bivalent boosters in a, in a publicly accessible way. What we do know is that about a third of the U.S. is boosted. That includes anyone who's ever gotten a booster. Um, uh, I think it's the, the CDC now says about 35% of people over five have at least one booster. People under five are not eligible for boosters yet. And, you know, we should point out people five to 11 have only been eligible for boosters for a little bit of time. You know, people 65 and above have been eligible for boosters for a long period of time. But uh, taking all that into account, about a third of the country has been boosted. Now, of the people who are vaccinated at all, about half have been boosted. Um, so, you know, one could imagine that that, you know, that sort of half of the people boosted are, you know, are, are, are I'm sorry, half the people vaccinated are um, engaged in, you know, getting boosters. Um, but we don't really know how many people have gotten the new shots. The U.S. didn't buy enough of the shots for everybody, um, for all boosted, for all vaccinated people to get one. Um, and I think they were estimating the demand wouldn't be there, but they got enough for substantially all the people who are eligible for one to get one. And, and so, um, you know, uh, again, I, I'm not aware of data showing what the uptake has been, um, but that'll be interesting to see when it when it does come. Yeah, I mean, I know just looking at my local pharmacy that, uh, you know, when the, the shots first came out way back when, you know, there's a line out the pharmacy door as soon as you could get one. And now, you can just walk in and get a booster anytime you want. Yeah, and I think that's part of that is a clearly a, a sign of decreased demand and less urgency, right? You know, people, right. not everybody. There's lots of reasons why you might not want a booster right away. I mean, there's certainly people who got a second booster recently and aren't eligible yet. Yep. You know, if, some, if, if an individual got COVID, um, often there's a recommendation that they'll wait a certain period of time before getting the booster. So it's not as though every single eligible adult or uh, adult is, is, is eligible right now. The other thing is, you know, distribution does seem to be better and, right. and, and more widespread. You can get it at any pharmacy. Whereas in the beginning, you know, you had to go to these big, big vaccination sites. It's, it's a different time. Yep. And, but the rollout has had some hiccups. Um, can you explain what's happening there? Yeah. And this is sort of a weird story that emerged over the past couple of days. Um, first, I mean, two or three days, days ago, there was reports of a shortage of Moderna doses. It wasn't explained, um, but then the Washington Post and others reported that the FDA actually held back about 10 million Moderna bivalent doses because they were inspecting a plant, not a Moderna plant, but a plant run by a contract uh, manufacturer called Catalent. They were not making the vaccine, they're packaging the vaccine. I, I believe it's called fill and finish. Um, and you know, Moderna has contracted with a couple of firms to do this. The FDA apparently did a very long month-long inspection of this Catalan plant, and they raised a bunch of serious sounding issues, um, but they also seem to have determined that there's not an issue with those Moderna doses and they've been released. Um, I have some questions about this. Uh, the coverage is just out the past day or so about this. Seems like a road bump, um, but I think there's, there's some questions about you know what was going on at that Catalan plant. Right. But once again, it wasn't about the vaccine itself, right? It right. Was... It's not about the vaccine itself. It's about uh, conditions at the plant where it was packaged. But the FDA seems to not be concerned about those Moderna doses packaged there. And, and they, they've released those doses. So the shortage that people have been seeing um, 
you know, people who were looking for a Moderna dose for whatever reason, as opposed to a Pfizer dose, um, have had trouble getting them in, in many cases. And that, that could end um, as the FDA releases those doses. I know I didn't ask you to, uh, about this before, but is there a big difference between whether, you know, I get a Pfizer or Moderna dose? Uh, I don't, I, it's, it's a tough, I, I don't really know. I, okay. I don't really know that, you know, I think, I think part of it is that the, as we know, or maybe people don't know that these particular vaccines weren't tested in people. Those, those human trials aren't done yet. Uh, related BA1 specific bivalent vaccines were, but you know, it's not as though the CDC or FDA has said one is better or the other right. is better. Well, I know even when I, I got the J and J vaccine, um, way back at the beginning, when I went to get boosted, you know, they basically said, do you want Moderna and Pfizer? And I said, you know, which is better? And they said, it doesn't matter. And they uh, said, just choose one. So I, right. I, I chose Moderna. Um, I will say that at, at some point when these boosters are uh, fully approved, there will begin to be advertising from Moderna and Pfizer. And the companies will likely make claims about superiority and, um, you know, point to various yeah. data. But uh, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to make a recommendation <laughs> I know. And i'm sure i'll get to see all those commercials while i'm watching ncis later exactly night. yeah um so what happened what's the what are the consequences if people really decide they don't need to get boosted uh well putting aside the public health consequences i think you know one point to make is that there are implications for the vaccine stocks and um you know as, you, as actually you you flagged for me earlier this morning um uh jp morgan analyst down downgraded novavax that was today right that was today, yes. Um, you know, Novavax's story has been, I think, frustrating for the many fans of that stock. They seem to have a very good COVID vaccine on their hands, but they've had a, a real consistent problem getting it um, through the process. You know, this was a company like Moderna and BioNTech that never had an approved product before COVID. Um, there were a number of technical challenges. They essentially didn't get their EUA, their emergency use authorization, until this summer in the U.S. And, you know, the, the, the analyst at J.P. Morgan said, it looks like demand for their vaccine is just very, very low in the U.S. and in the EU. I think there was a theory, you know, that you could move towards a more commoditized vaccine market where Moderna and Pfizer would lose pricing power as other entrants came in and, and, and Novavax was seen as as another entrant. Um, but it appears that demand remains quite low. And although they seem to be they, they are working on an Omicron specific vaccine, they don't have data on it yet. It's unclear how a production shift would work. So I, you know, I, the, the analysts at JP Morgan are sort of losing, losing their enthusiasm for that stock. And, um, is there, uh, is there, is there a vaccine different, uh, from, um, Pfizer and Moderna? Yes, yes. It's quite different. It, it uses, uh, whereas the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are messenger RNA based vaccines, which is a phrase that no one had ever heard before <laughs> for people who don't read Barron's cause we wrote about it in August of 2019, but a few people had heard it before, uh, 2020. Um, Whereas the Novavax vaccine uses a much more established vaccine technology that is similar to other approved um, vaccines on the market. And, you know, the, the, the trials were very good. Um, and I think there, there's a sense that it, it, it really is a good vaccine, um, but it didn't get approved until very late. And you know, the reasons are complicated and we get, don't need to get into, but um, yeah. it's been, you know, that, that stock had a lot of fans early on and I, I think it's, and people still believe in it, but as you can see from this note this morning, the story is getting harder to buy into. Yeah. And it's not like Moderna has been doing the stock has been doing so great, right? I mean, it was no. 
You know, uh, uh, so this is a stock that was trading at $180 per share in early August, and it's now down to $125 per share. It's down 50% this year. You know, there's a number of factors here, right? Biotech in general has had a very tough year. Um, and, you know, the Moderna shares ran up quite sharply early in the pandemic. And, you know, what's happened since those peaks in early 2021 are peaks of the, of the valuation of the company are, I think, questions about what's next in the pipeline and how long-term these COVID vaccine revenues are going to be. You know, Moderna has made a strategic decision to invest very heavily in its own pipeline and not do any substantial, do any M&A. And although there's a very broad pipeline with a lot of interesting things in there, you know, they still only have one product in the market. And I think that investors are, you know, don't appear to be sold on how this pipeline is going to work out. And I think they're interesting, substantial questions. For example, they put a lot of emphasis on their mRNA-based flu, flu vaccine. Um, is the flu vaccine going to be better than some of the good flu vaccines on the market? Are people going to be willing to deal with the reactions you might get from an mRNA-based vaccine? Um, you know, the whole thesis just there's a lot of a lot of reasonable questions about it. Um, I think people are really waiting for some, you know, their, their, their next approvals and to see what happens with the long-term COVID vaccine market. And I imagine, you know, there have been notes at various times that have argued they need to do some M&A and, and they've, they've said they're open to certain kinds of M&A. They, they, they have it. a lot of cash, right? Yeah, I was just going to say they certainly have the cash for it, but they, and they, they've spoken a lot about, you know, how far away from mRNA they would go. Um, they'll, you know, do other NRA, um, sorry, other RNA focused technologies, but not I, I don't want to misquote them, but they, they, they will go away from their core, but not so far away from their core. And they spelled this out. But, um, you know, what it's looked like so far is that they are they have a lot of late stage, late stage expensive programs and they are funding those with their cash. And they're also doing a lot of buybacks. I will say that that does having that cash puts them in a lot better shape than uh, a lot of other biotechs that are trying to get products uh, out there. Um, sure. So. Uh, Josh, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Um, so we have new data um, due for on an Alzheimer's drug from Biogen. I think that's later this month. Um, how big a deal is this? Yeah, speaking of other biotech, so th- this this is this is a big deal. This is a, a drug called Lecanemab, and it's being developed. We should say importantly, jointly by Biogen and the, and the Japanese company Isai. Uh, they're working together on this. They also work together on Agihelm and listeners to. Aaron's live will recall that we've talked incessantly about Agile Helm over the last two years and a half <laughs> since, since we've been doing this. In fact, um, you know, th- there, there are um, Agile Helm, as people will remember, was a sort of pretty, pretty big commercial failure for Biogen. You know, this was um, the first new Alzheimer's drug approved in decades. The approval was very controversial. The trials that supported the approval were very controversial. And eventually, while the FDA did approve um, Agihelm, the agency that that runs um, the uh, Medicare program said uh, they they were not going to pay for it. Um, they were not going to pay for the drug, and that basically led Biogen to say they were going to stop trying to sell it. Um, so that's where we are, and and Biogen shares are uh, trading at around two hundred dollars a share, uh, which is pretty which is about half of where it was trading when the drug was first approved um, a year ago in June. 
so so aducanumab now called agihelm is um, it's called an anti-amyloid antibody and they basically try to clear these brain plaques that are thought to cause alzheimer's and there are uh, three more of can i, drugs. Can yes, I pause you there because what uh that's the thing that is so controversial right that they can target these kind of plaques but that that doesn't necessarily improve alzheimer's right and that's that's so the theory referred to as the beta amyloid theory is that it I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying dramatically, but is that if you clear these plaques, uh, you can uh, show a cognitive benefit or at least a slowing of cognitive decline. And that's based on this theory that these plaques are in some way causing the symptoms. The buildup of these plaques are causing the symptoms of Alzheimer's. The problem is that, you know, trials of drugs that clearly can clear the plaques have really struggled to show that they can have a cognitive benefit. Um, and that they can, or a clinical benefit and can really slow the cognitive decline. Um, and I think a lot of scientists who work on this have basically, you know, lost faith in the hypothesis. I mean, this has been the focus of Alzheimer's research for decades. And I think, you know, the, the notion that this is going to be the answer, I think, is out the window. But a number of companies are still pursuing these drugs based on the idea that they can have some effect and potentially in earlier stage patients who, um, you know, very, very early stage patients, they could have more of an effect. So there are three more of these drugs that okay. we're going to hear about in the next few months. One of them in the next week or so um, is this lecanemab drug from Biogen and ISI. And there's two more, one from Roche and one from Eli Lilly. And altogether, I think it's sort of a final test for, for this hypothesis, which has been the focus of so much effort, so much hope, and so many millions of dollars for so many years and, and so what are they hoping to to show in these tests that uh, uh Agile did not um what would make th these tests uh successful in, um in, in a way yeah i mean they, these companies want to all want to prove that they can um that their drugs can um can slow clinical uh, cognitive decline by more you know, significantly. So, so the ISI uh, folks are, are targeting 25% slowing, you know, when you compare over an 18 month period, the group that got the drug and the placebo group, and they measure it based on this um, widely used uh, tool called um, CDR, some of the boxes, and it, it takes into account cognitive and also functional stuff like your ability to do, you know, certain key tasks that a person would need to do. Um, and you get that all that together and you get a number and they, they just want the number to go down more slowly, uh, significantly more slowly. Um, these are very large trials uh, mm -hmm. and it's not impossible. They'll see an effect. The debate's going to be, I think, about how significant the effect is and if it's, you know, really clinically significant. And it, it will need to be pretty clinically significant, I think, to get investors excited because of the Agilehelm experience where they did get FDA approval, but then CMS, um, in a, you know, not usual thing the CMS does steps out and says that we're not going to cover this um, FDA approved drug. Uh, it's not exactly clear what CMS is going to need to cover a drug of this category. It seems as though it'll need to get full approval rather than accelerated approval, which is something we can go on into. But um, I, the, the bar is not entirely clear. I think if, if lecanemab data comes out next week and it slowed clinical decline by, you know, 35 percent 
I think people will be pretty optimistic that this drug will make it to the market and you know people will pay for it and it will be a very, very large seller for these companies. And so what does it mean for uh, Biogen stock, uh, this trial? So as I said, you know, the broader picture is that Biogen um, focused very heavily on Alzheimer's and, and it's not working out. But apart from, from Alzheimer's, you know, Biogen is a company that had a lot of very important drugs over the course uh, of, its, of its life as a company. And a lot of those key, key drugs are facing very serious competition right now. Um, so the picture's not great for that company. And, and if it doesn't turn out, if it doesn't work out, um, you know, analysts I spoke to thought that it could, shares could fall from where they are now, or 200 down to say $160 per share. And, and there would be conversations about, you know, investor conversations would turn to Biogen's future, you know, will it sell off its parts, certain parts, certain businesses? Will, could the whole thing be acquired? Would they get much more aggressive in M&A? Um, those are all questions that'll come up. If it's positive, it's a very different story. Analysts said it could go as high as $350 um, per share. Um, that would be, you know, on a, on a very positive readout. And I think one important thing to say is that while the CEO of Biogen um, has announced he's leaving uh, and the company is looking for a new CEO, he's still in place and they have not picked a new one. And I think they will pick a very different CEO if it's positive as opposed to if it's negative. You know, if it's a negative CEO, you want sort of a turnaround type type executive yep. and um, positive, you know, you want someone who's going to really focus on commercializing this product. Okay, well, we're getting short on time. So let's move quickly over to one last thing, which I found pretty fascinating. It's uh, what's going on with, uh, with Zantac uh, that uh, um, it was a Harper medication that uh, was, was taken off the, uh, the market. Um, so it, can you go through first, uh, you know, what's why this is such a big deal right now? Yeah, so this is this is super interesting. You know, th this is a drug, as you say, that uh, over-the-counter heartburn drug. FDA took it off the market more or less um, because there were concerns about contamination. Um, and since then, a lot of people have filed lawsuits um, claiming they were injured by this drug. They, uh, certain forms of cancer, they they claim they they were caused by the drug. The companies deny that it can that this could have happened, um, but that's where you're going to have the litigation. Investors didn't really care about this until August 9th or 10th, when an analyst mentioned it almost in passing in a note about uh, Sanofi. And basically, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about Zantag is that it was passed along throughout the course of its life to a number of big pharma firms. Um, so a lot of companies touched it. And when this note came out, shares of Sanofi fell 7% the next day. GlaxoSmithKline shares fell about 4%. Halion shares fell about 8%. I mean, billions of dollars in market capitalization was erased. Um, and the, the question here is who is going to hold the bag if if there are payouts? The companies are trying to get other companies that they bought the, the the rights of this drug from to indemnify them against any possible payouts. And and the big the big question here is is around Halion, which is a as we've spoken about in the past, a new large consumer health firm that was created out of a spin out from GSK, but it was actually formed as a joint venture between GSK and Pfizer, both of which sold Zantac at different times. And, and in August, when this first came up, Zantac said that that both Pfizer and GSK had served Halion with a notice of potential indemnification. Mm -hmm. um, and Halion, in fact, you know, acknowledged that there were potential indemnification responsibilities. Now, just a couple of days ago, Halion said they're rejecting 
those indemnification uh, claims from Pfizer and GSK. And their rationale is interesting. They, they're saying that while Pfizer and GSK did sell Zantac in the past, at the time that the joint venture was formed, the joint venture that re uh, resulted in the creation of Halion, eventually, they did not sell Zantac. So those liabilities aren't covered. GSK came out and said they disagree. And there are grounds to ask for indemnification from Halion and bring those claims. <laughs> Pfizer has said it's true. Do. Um, but the, the, the bottom line here is that there will likely be some kind of I, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if it's a, uh, if you have arbitration or litigation or what, but it is notable that, you know, Pfizer and GSK together own 45% of Halion. Um, they built the board and there are <laughs> board members who um, have very, very close, are in fact, employees of at least of Pfizer. So um, I, I think it will be an interesting thing. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to get messy and uh, should be at least uh, fun to watch if yeah. not to participate in. Exactly. Um, so we have a, a few questions um, from uh, readers, um, and um, they, they, you know, I, I'm going to just toss these out at you. If, if you don't have an answer, just just say you don't. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I guess the, the first uh, one I'd like to, to, to ask you is from Joseph. Um, you know, he, he said that he'd heard that uh, if you got a Pfizer vaccine and then got a Moderna, verse, uh, Moderna booster or vice versa, that it offered better protection. Is there any evidence that shows that's true? Uh, yeah, there certainly have been. You know, I, I, I don't really want to give uh, medical advice here. There, there yeah. is this idea that um, heterologous, uh, you know, going back and forth can help, but I, I'm not up on the latest data on this. So I would suggest people talk to their doctors or look at the CDC website. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then Steve was wondering, um, you know, we were talking about uh, Moderna and the durability of the, the vaccine uh, business. Is this something that uh, we're going to have to get once a year, like flu vaccines? Oh, I think that's an important question. That's, you know, deeply relevant to the share prices, at least of Moderna. Um, you know, will it be annual? You know, as far as, I mean, it seems as though um, for at least the previous generations of, of the COVID vaccines, um, they, don't, they don't last quite a year. Um, so would it be more often for certain people? Is that reasonable to ask people to do? Will the CDC really ask us to do more than once a year with the COVID boosters? I don't think we know. And I think to me, it seems that what very important to find out like how well in the real world these new bivalent vaccines work and whether they last longer and, you know, what next generation COVID vaccines could, could come along that would, um, that would that would increase their duration and efficacy. The other thing is, um, as I think I may have mentioned, Moderna is trying to combine their COVID booster with their flu vaccine. Um, so you get one shot and it would give you both. And they have this whole idea of a, of a bundle vaccine where you get like flu and COVID and then they would add RSV and then they would add other things. So over time, or maybe it's CMV, but anyway, over time it would, you would bundle, bundle more and more um, respiratory vaccines into one shot that you can get every year. Okay. Um, and then uh, Marcos was wondering, um, what do you think of healthcare stocks right now? Something like uh, the XLV, which um, you know, owns the entire sector. Any thoughts there? Look, I, I think that's that gets more into the macro area. I think to take a position on that, uh, you have to take a position on, uh, on, on, on where things are going more broadly. I think the big question is whether these, these large cap healthcare stocks will continue to work as a defensive play, uh, which I think has been, you know, a, certainly a trend um, in the market in the past few months. Um, yeah. But I think that remains to be seen. 
No, I know a lot of the, uh, the strategists I've uh, either talked to or been reading um, are, are probably more positive on healthcare than they mm -hmm. are on some of the other traditionally defensive sectors like mm -hmm. uh, consumer staples or or utilities just because the growth uh, does tend to be a, a bit better there. Um, it's so, not always correlated with, in, in, you know, with, with the yeah, rest of the economy. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, okay, well, I think that this is all the time we have today. I want to thank everyone for listening. And Josh, uh, thank you for being here. Um, please join us again tomorrow. William Buckhart, CEO of the Investment Integration Project, will speak with Penta senior writer Abby Schultz about private market approaches for investing in renewable energy. Thanks, everyone, and be well. The energy transition is a long and winding road and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.